Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on the greatest of all radio stations, WFMU. Live from downtown Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey. Happy to be here. Hope your summer is going well. I have a great interview for you this evening. I'm very happy to have Bruce Schneier on the show. We're going to be hearing my conversation with him in a few minutes about his new book called A Hacker's Mind. I'll tell you more about Bruce in this book uh, in just a second. But I wanted to, I wanted to uh, pose a question to you, the listeners, uh, that a question that has to do with an upcoming show. Uh, I have had an idea for a while that I would do a show that had something to do with listener questions. Not that it would have something to do with it, that the show would be based on listener questions. Specifically, that I would field whatever questions the listeners have for me, I'd, I'd choose a few of them, and that would be the hour of, uh, of Tectonic with my going through and giving my answers to whatever is on your mind, listeners. So I'll try to remember to uh, give you a reminder at the end of the broadcast as well this evening. But before I forget, uh, this week, if you have a question that you'd like me to address on the upcoming questions show, just email me, mark at wfmu.org. That's M-A-R-K at wfmu.org. And uh, you can just type your question for me. I mean, in past uh, episodes when I've done something like this, I've invited people to record themselves with a comment. And uh, I think it'd just be easier if I read these out. And if you want your question to be anonymous, just note that uh, and I'll make sure to keep it anonymous. Otherwise, I'll just give your first name when I read it out on air. I don't know that I'll get, depending on how many I get, I don't know if I'll get to everyone's question, but uh, it could be a question about what do I think about a current event? What do I think about a particular technology or product? Um, what is a prediction that I have for something? I, for example, I, I at the end of last week's broadcast, I gave you my prediction as to this uh, Zuckerberg-Musk cage match, which uh, I don't think is going to happen. So it could be something like that. What do you think is going to happen with that? The reason I'm doing this question show is because I come up with the ideas of the show themes or topics or guests, you know, the books to be featured. And once in a while, I think it's nice to hear from the listeners, what's on your mind? What would, what would you like the show to cover? And so if you can phrase it in the form of a question, uh, I would be happy to try to take a, take a stab at uh, answering those. So again, email me, mark at wfmu.org if you have a question that you'd like me to include in the upcoming question show, listener question show. Now, let's talk about Bruce Schneier, should we? Uh, Bruce is someone who I've wanted to have on the show for years. Uh, he is a cybersecurity expert. Uh, he's a lecturer uh, at Harvard. He's written a bunch of books, and he's been blogging for a couple of decades now. And I've just I've seen his work all over the place for years, and I've always been impressed. And I've always thought, man, if I could just get Bruce on the show, that would be a great conversation. And then he came out with this book called A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. And uh, I thought, great fit. So here, um, we're going to hear from Bruce in a moment. This book, you're going to hear, and he's going to describe this at the, at the beginning of the interview, but he's talking about hacking, but not in the sense uh, exclusively of computer hacking. So if, uh, if you're worried about this getting too technical, don't, because this, is, this conversation is not primarily, uh, let alone exclusively, about any sort of computer hacking or online ha hacking. It's more hacking broadly defined, and uh, we will talk about in the interview what that means. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, Go to WFMU.org and click Playlists and Comments. If you're listening to a future podcast or archive version of the show, uh, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, 
and you'll find the playlist link for the July 31st, 2023 show. And now let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Bruce Schneier here on Tectonic on WFMU. My guest on Tectonic today is Bruce Schneier, security technologist and author of over a dozen books, the latest of which is A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with hacks, Bruce. Many people out there associate hacks with digital intrusion, like, oh, my email got hacked or my phone got hacked, whatever. But in this book, you're presenting a much more expansive definition of hacks, essentially taking advantage of loopholes in any kind of system, whether that's digital or legal or financial, political. Can you say a bit about how you're using the word hack in this book, A Hacker's Mind? So I'm using the computer definition, but I'm making it more general. So in my way of thinking, a hack is something the system permits but is unintended and unanticipated by the designers. So when someone hacked your email, they did something the system allowed, right? They were able to get into your email, but you didn't want them to do that. The system wasn't supposed to make that happen. So they figured out a loophole in the computer code that is your email. And that's what I'm generalizing. So think about the tax code, right? It's not computer code, but it's code. It's a bunch of algorithms as inputs and outputs. You plug your numbers in, you get the amount of tax you owe. It is very much a deterministic system. And that system has bugs. It has vulnerabilities. And we do call them tax loopholes. It has exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And then it has black hat hackers. We call them accountants and attorneys. So in a very real sense, it's the same thing. It is hackers looking for vulnerabilities in the code to exploit them for someone's benefit. And that's true for Microsoft Windows, and it's true for the tax code. And it's also true for like lots of other different systems. So I write about sports rules in sports or religious rules or you know, regulations. I mean, all of these things have been hacked throughout history. You know, mostly by people who want some advantage. Yeah, I appreciate the broad scope of the topic. There are other books or articles I've seen about hacks and cybersecurity just on the digital side. And I've read a lot and I've spoken a lot on this show about the tax avoidance strategies of the tech giants and other companies. But here's a book that puts it all together and says, All of this is hacking. And in fact, as you just said, hacking has been going on for a long time. It may not have been called hacking, you know, 200 years ago, but the idea of finding vulnerabilities in a system and exploiting that has been around as long as we've had society and any kind of economy, right? Well, as long as we've had systems of rules or even systems of norms, right? It doesn't have to be formal rules, you know, just ways that people are living together, working together, being together. And then there are some norms or rules that we have to live under. And I want some advantage, right? So I mean, I have a lot of examples from, from religion. And so for many centuries uh, in the Christian faith, you couldn't charge interest. I mean, that wasn't allowed. That was against the religious law. Now, interest is like essential to making a complex economy work. So there are all these hacks. All of these ways that you could charge interest in a way that God didn't count it properly. <laughs> uh, you know, in a lot of ways, the Jews uh, were able to become money lenders because they didn't have that prohibition. Right. So there are there are dry sea loans and ways that you could tie a loan to something that didn't exist in a way that is okay with the rules. And lots of examples. I grew up Jewish, and there are dozens of examples from my childhood of hacking the, the, the rules where right? you can't turn on electricity in the Sabbath you're not, if you're Orthodox. So my cousin's house had all sorts of timers. Now, right. then they'd argue beforehand, like, what TV station should it be set to? Because you couldn't change the channel. So you had to figure out which sporting events you wanted to watch and not change the channel. 
because the TV would turn on at this time and turn off at the other, other time because that's what the uh, the timer set. And and even in modern day, there are uh, special appliances and special phones and computer equipment that you can buy that technically follow the rules, but of course break them in spirit. Right. But that's okay. People outside New York might not have encountered this, but New Yorkers are, most of us, are familiar with the concept of a Sabbath elevator, which you also mentioned in the book. I was in a hospital once visiting somebody on a Friday night, and I was going to go to an elevator. The doors open, and someone said, oh, no, no, if you're going to the 19th floor, don't take that. That's the Sabbath elevator, which, of course, is the elevator that stops at every single floor because for Orthodox Jews, they're not allowed to press the button because that right, counts as the button. Right. So, but this is a trick I've learned. So uh, you're not, I also not allowed to ask someone to press the button for you. So you can't say, you can't get the elevator and say, can you press 17? That's not allowed. But you can get into the elevator and ask, is 17 pressed? <laughs> right. Right. Because you're not asking them to do it. Now they're making the obvious leap. That's right. But this kind of, right, like, loophole finding, this kind of hair splitting. This is what I'm talking about. And yeah. you know, it's funny when we talk about elevators in the Sabbath, when we're talking about tax loopholes that save some big company millions of dollars, it starts getting real. Let's just cover one more example that I love telling. When Good, because I love the stories. Stories yeah, are the most fun. The healthy choice American Airlines hack. Do you want to tell it? I'll sort of tell the story, but, but in general... Airline frequent flyer programs have been hacked. So uh, in the 90s, we had mileage runs. The idea is you'd look for fares that flew a lot of miles for very little money. And then there was positive value in just doing that, even though you didn't actually want to go to where you, where you were going. So mileage runs, all different ways of, of, of hacking airline frequent flyer programs. A lot of them have been kind of designed out of the system that the modern frequent flyer programs don't allow for a lot of those hacks. They've gone away. But this is one that happened, I forget the year, but it was a tie-in. So American Airlines had a tie-in with uh, Healthy Choice that you would get miles for buying uh, Healthy Choice products. I mean, you know, these tie-ins exist. They, Uber has them now and uh, other, other systems have it. But they designed it a little sloppily, and it turned out that if you bought single serving pudding cups, I'm not making this up, for like 25 <laughs> cents each, the amount of miles you got was worth more than the pudding. Like you could make a profit buying pudding. One person noticed this and bought thousands of these single cup of pudding and got a huge number of miles, actually donated the pudding to charity and got a tax write off. So he's like making money different ways. And right. So he's finding something that the rules allow. He didn't break the rules. Right. He's following the rules, but he's following them in a way that the people who created the rules, they made a mistake. Right. It's something I didn't anticipate. And I think he got enough miles. The punchline was he got enough miles that now he flies free on American forever, right? Yeah, it's not that many. American's not that bad. But yes, he did get a whole bunch of miles. I'm going to tell one more story because yeah. I love this story. It's a story from sports. Sports is full of hacks. I mean, people want to win. So you study the rules looking for loopholes, looking for a hack. So 1970s, Formula One racing, some team shows up on the track with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they pull out the rule book and say, show me. And it turns out the rules are silent on the number of wheels a car could have, because who would have imagined anything other than four wheels? Now, that hack worked. Now, the Federation of Formula Racing, they have some French name. I forget what they are. They did fix the rules, right? So if, now if you read the rules for Formula Racing, a car can have no more than, or no less than, don't get any ideas, four wheels. So there's an example of a hack, and sports is full of hacks. Yeah, you mentioned the curved hockey stick, and hockey started as a hack, and even dunking in basketball. I did not know that. Yes, that was illegal when it was first done. And, some, and this is important about hacks. They, 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 sometimes they get incorporated into the system if they are beneficial. Right? The, so curving your hockey stick 
was no one thought of it. I mean, no one occurred to anybody. We know there's a person who thought of it a bunch of years ago. We have his name. And when you curve your hockey stick, the puck goes much faster. It gets air, right? It, it's an exciting game. It's a dangerous game. And the league decided they liked it, that it was a better game. And the rule book has been modified several times on the amount of curvature that is legal, right? How much curve you can have. Because they're trying to balance excitement with safety. Right. Same thing with dunking. It was a, it was illegal when it was first done. Then fans liked it, and it was made legal in college basketball first, and then the pro basketball because it made for a more exciting game. So here we have hacks that either have been fixed. You know, the frequent flyer miles. If American Airlines does another promotion, they're going to make sure. Right, they're going to check. <laughs> pudding, pudding is not going to be on the menu. Um, and then we have other hacks that were normalized. Like you say, this has become very popular. People love dunking or we love the extra excitement of a game of hockey with curved sticks. And so we're going to write that into the rules. That difference between hacks that need to be fixed, meaning rules need to be written to prevent them from happening, and hacks that are accepted and normalized becomes one of the central patterns of this book. As you get later in the book, the stakes get much higher than curved hockey sticks and single-serving pudding cups. Right, because it's tax loopholes, it's regulatory loopholes. And often it's the rich and powerful decide what stays and what goes. So you think of Peter Thiel. He uh, exploited a loophole in the Roth IRA to basically shield $4 billion, with a B, dollars in taxes. Now, that's definitely a hack, and it's not going to get fixed. Right, the carried interest loophole, right, which is a hack that is being used by hedge fund managers to avoid paying tax. They spend a lot of money, every Congress, to make sure that rule never gets patched, that they are allowed to use that hack, to use that loophole. Think of Uber. I mean, Uber spends I – mean, it spends money on its system and drivers and its app, but it spends like most of its money – lobbying to different state legislators, making sure the various loopholes it uses to misclassify workers and not have to follow various safety protocols that regular taxis do, that it remains exempt from. So it is a company that is built on hacks. So yeah, the stakes do get high because patching the loophole turns out to be hard sometimes. Right? If you are American Airlines, you just change rules of your frequent flyer program. If you are Microsoft, you just fix the code in Windows, right? You can patch your system. It's easy, right? You're in charge. But if it's the tax code, no one's really in charge, right? You know, Congress is divided. There'll be different opinions about whether this loophole is good or bad. You know, we can't do anything anyway. And these loopholes remain, you know, lobbying incense, different Congress people not to patch the loopholes. You know, if I find a loophole in the tax code and I use it, it's going to be patched, right? The IRS is going to say, you can't do that. And I don't have the money to take them to court, and I'm not going to battle for years, where if you are a, you know, a billionaire, you will, because the loopholes are more valuable to you. This is where we get to the subtitle of the book. Again, the, the title of the book is A Hacker's Mind, and the subtitle is How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. When you talk about the powerful bending society's rules, you're not talking about sports and frequent flyer miles. I mean, my experience of reading this book, Bruce, is in three acts, okay? Act one, amusement. Oh, I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Act two, rage. I can't believe they're doing that to us. And act three is sheer terror, which we're going to get to. But now we're in the rage It's section. supposed to end with hope. What happened? Uh, I must admit, there were, I think a page was missing because... No, 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 no. It is actually, it is terrible when people write books that are an entirely, oh, this is also horrible. And it's been the last <laughs> chapter on, here's how we can sort of half-ass fix it. I try to do better than that. Well, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And okay, I, okay. I will, I will grant right, can you Can I tell that. one more story before we do that? Because this is a hacking story that's not in the book, and I like it so much. Okay, yes. All let's right. hear it. So this is a religious hack. All right, so here's the problem. You want to commit suicide, but it's a mortal sin. So if you do it, your soul goes straight to hell forever. So here's the hack. You murder somebody. You murder an innocent person. 
Now, you will be tried and executed, but before you are, you can confess to a priest and you won't go to hell. Yeesh. All right. This was actually a problem in the 17th and 18th centuries in Northern Europe, oddly, particularly in Denmark for some reason. People were doing this. They were committing murder in order to be put to death so they can commit suicide without going to hell. The only way the government solved it was eliminating capital punishment. No kidding. I'm not making this up. That is a religious hack. I, I learned about it after the book was written. Otherwise, it would have gotten a star point because it's such a bizarre hack. Huh. I never, I never knew that. I didn't either. Someone, a, a reader sent it to me. There's, there's lots of examples out there of these hacks. And your book does a great job of taking people through the examples in, as I said, many different fields to give people a sense of the widespread popularity of hacking and the success of hacking. And then what do we do when the hack is revealed? Um, you have hacks in specific industries, finance, law, politics. And I want to spend a little bit of time on finance because you write, wherever there's money to be made, there's hacking. And that was a good lead up to this, this series of short chapters on how financial systems can be hacked. In particular, as I'm thinking about the tech industry, you write about venture capital. The system that Silicon Valley has perfected, if we can use that word, of throwing immense amounts of money at these companies that are not profitable with a goal not to create some useful service that competes well, but to obliterate all the competition. You write, venture capital itself is not a hack. The hack is when unprofitable companies use VC funding to ignore the dynamics of the market economy. It's basically central planning by elite investors, something that would be called communism if the government did it. So here we see a, the driving economic force behind so much of the tech industry being deployed as a hack that is subverting the market economy. You know, I think of Uber as the prime example there. I mean, there, there have been years, probably still true, where they lose 43 cents on the dollar. Like every single ride is unprofitable. And what they're really trying to do is strangle the taxi industry. So they're the only ones left standing. Where you think of Walmart's strategy of coming into a community, undercutting all of the local merchants until they go out of business and then raising their prices. You know, these are subversions of the basic notions of capitalism, market economy. I mean, it, it works when you have a multitude of sellers competing for even more buyers. I mean, think of a market, an actual physical market in the center of town that's selling vegetables. There, the market works well, and the market forces work extraordinarily well. When you have these things that perturb that, whether they're monopolies, right, there isn't competition, whether it is these corporations lobbying to Congress to achieve favorable regulatory uh, rulings so they can operate in different ways, or in this case, where they get a separate influx of money so they don't have to deal with the kind of standard you know, market dynamics. So you imagine a market in the center of town selling vegetables. If one rolls in and says all vegetables are free, right, because they're VC funded and all vegetables are, everybody will buy from them and everyone will buy from them until all the other sellers who can't possibly compete go out of business, right? I'm going to do something else with my career because selling vegetables is a dumb thing to do. This guy's selling, giving away for free every weekend. And then once everybody is gone, or more likely when you know the free seller buys up all the other sellers, then they just now control prices. And so this is a hack of the basic system of capitalism, of the market economy. We've seen Walmart at work for decades at this point. I guess what's, what's different now is that there's immense sums of money being deployed to brand new companies to act like that. And the computerization of it. So if you think about even Walmart, I mean, they can modify their prices based on what they think they can get, but it's still a royal pain, right? You've got to go to the shelves. You've got to change the price. You used to have like a, a sticker, a gun sticker to put on the, the, the items. If you're Amazon, you can update your prices 30 times a minute. 
without it even being hard. So the amount of manipulation you can do when you are an online merchant is orders of magnitude greater. The amount of manipulation, you know, I can modify my prices. Some of this is illegal. So, so you, like, I'm not allowed to modify my prices based on your gender. Right? That is not allowed. And in fact, Victoria's Secret got in trouble for that because they would send two different catalogs out, paper catalogs, one to men, one to women. I think that was in the 80s. But you can uh, modify your prices based on zip code. You can modify your prices or more likely the order in which you show prices based on the type of browser the person visiting your website is using. Are they using an Apple browser? Are they using a, a Windows browser? So you know their operating system, which might be a proxy for their wealth, right? right. I'm kind of making this up. There are a bunch of these that are legal for price discrimination. And you can do that at a level you just can't do in a brick and mortar store. So the amount of manipulation is greater. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Bruce Schneier, cybersecurity expert and author. We're talking about his new book, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. You've heard some stories of hacks from various parts of life, from sports and commerce. And um, as I told Bruce, my experience reading the book was amusement, rage, and terror. And uh, I think we're midway through, te- uh, through rage right now, and we're going to get to terror later in the interview. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Bruce Schneier. And of course, the uh, live listener comment board is at WFMU.org if you'd like to join in here on Tectonic on WFMU. Another thing that you write about quite a bit in the book is the opacity of these systems. When these manipulations are going on, you write, how can we even tell the difference? These manipulations can be subtle. They can be deployed at scale. They can be very sophisticated. They can happen very quickly. And to a human being that's on the receiving end of these systems, not only do you have no power to patch them or fix them, like you said before, we may not even be aware that these manipulations are happening. And and there's a term for that. You know, we call them dark patterns. And these are manipulative user interfaces in computers. And it's things like, you know, the buy button is bright and green and the no thanks button is super tiny and you'll see when you see ads and and the the x to close the window is really hard to find and and more than that you 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 think you're subscribing one time and it's actually a continuous subscription that you have to cancel and canceling is hard Uh, the one that annoys me the most is when i buy airline tickets there's a button about insurance that oh yeah is never clicked. I always have to remember to click no. And if you get it wrong, it's a royal pain to cancel, but it's only $40. So is it worth canceling? I mean, these are all manipulative interfaces, basically trying to manipulate you to do the thing that the company wants, right? Facebook does it. You, you have, if you don't click your privacy policies just right, they take all your data. And there's so many ways you can get it wrong. But yes, you know, I mean, see, these are to me, Hacks. These are more hacks against our cognitive systems, which is a little stretch for my metaphor. I'm not going to lie, but the idea is that you know our cognitive systems evolved in a certain environment, and they are now being deliberately manipulated by companies, by politicians, by these websites that get us to do certain things. And these systems are getting just better and better at it. Yeah, you have a whole section of chapters in the book on hacking cognitive systems. You write about dark patterns, user interfaces that in some cases are inspired by slot machines in Las Vegas. Those people are really good at addictive user interfaces. They've spent a lot of time on the psychology. The psychology of slot machines is well worth studying. 
Yeah. There's a book called Addiction by Design by Natasha Dalshul that is... Yeah, it's a very good book. That's an excellent book. It can be a little distressing to think about how we're going to respond to this tsunami of dark patterns that are being deployed in every interface, it seems, in every kind of industry, every aspect of life. And so an obvious question is, what are we going to do to protect ourselves? You know, I think it's easy to respond. We just lack the political will. The Federal Trade Commission has the charter of protecting us from unfair and deceptive trade practices. That's like in the law that brought them into existence. Dark patterns are an example of unfair and deceptive trade practices. Now, the FTC is starting to do more. So they're, I think they're waking up to the fact that, yes, they are the entity that is supposed to regulate yeah. this behavior. But that's how we do it. Right? You know, in our society, government is the entity we use to regulate the playing field on which corporations operate. And in the past several decades, governments kind of abdicate that responsibility, at least in the United States. But it is our job. Right? That's the job of government. Yeah. So I want the FTC to basically pass rules on on you know what isn't allowed, what is unfair, what is deceptive, what can't be done. All right, now let's get to the last section of the book that I want to cover, which is the truly terrifying set of chapters. Ah, uh, the AI chapters. The I get AI it. chapters. <laughs> Part seven is called hacking AI systems, and by hacking AI systems, I think you don't mean. There is some computer hacker out there who's going to hack into an AI system. No, that's the easy one. I mean the hard one. The hard one is when the AI system starts hacking everything else. <laughs> All right. Let me walk through this. This notion of finding a hack, right? Let's, let's take the tax loopholes again. Finding a tax loophole is hard, and human beings study the tax code, like look at every word and every comma to try to figure out where the hacks are, where the loopholes are, and where Congress in passing the law made a mistake. Maybe it was a typo. Maybe it was something I didn't notice. Maybe a situation has changed and there's a gray area. Human beings look for those loopholes. We can imagine an AI doing the same thing. So right now, AIs are used to find loopholes in computer code, right? Actual bugs. They're not that good at it. They're getting better, but it is a sort of task that you can imagine an AI getting good at, right? It's boring, it's repetitive, a lot of data looking for patterns. This is a lot of research here. And I think in the next few years, AIs will be getting very good at finding software vulnerabilities. Now, this helps the attacker and the defender, right? The attacker finds vulnerabilities and exploits them, but the defender finds vulnerabilities and patches them. So you can imagine this being built into the compilers and the companies are using it on software before it's released actually end up being a good thing in general. But the same basic idea could apply to the tax code. So you can imagine feeding an AI the world's tax codes and say, find me the loopholes. Like, will it figure out that you should register your ship in Panama, that you should incorporate in Delaware? I mean, all these kind of hacks that are now common knowledge. Will it find new things? There's a loophole called the double Dutch Irish sandwich. This is a loophole that companies like Google and Apple use to avoid paying billions in federal tax over, over a bunch of years. And it involves the tax law of Ireland, of the Netherlands, the United States, and an offshore Caribbean island. Like all four tax codes together create this loophole. Maybe there are more complicated ones that require 10 countries. I mean, stuff that it's like humans just can't understand. It's so complicated. What happens when the AIs start figuring these out, when they discover them? This seems like a bad thing. This seems hard because patching tax loopholes is not easy. We mentioned the carried interest loophole. We've been trying for 20 years to patch that thing, and we can't seem to do it. The hard ones are really hard. So I do worry about a world where AIs are doing their creative part of finding loopholes. I mean, this AI tax loophole finder, my guess it's a research project in the basement of Goldman Sachs right now. I mean, of course it is. And the way it'll work is the AI will find something. The humans will look at it and say, no, that's not any good. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Well, that's okay, but let's tweak it, right? So it's going to be some AI human partnership. What I'm saying is still science fiction, 
but it's not stupid science fiction. Right? I think it's something I want to think about now, which is one of the reasons I'm writing this in the book. Yeah, I mean, if you had said two or three years ago, we're going to have an AI that can spit out whole essays on any given work of literature. You'd be surprised. <laughs> You'd be surprised at ChatGPT. That's the thing about AI research. It is so nonlinear. Things you think are easy end up being hard. Things you think are hard end up being easy. You know, when I was in college, we learned that the game of Go would never be solved by an AI. Not because the rules are complicated. The rules are simple. Because the size of the board, the number of possible moves, explodes exponentially so fast that you can't imagine an AI grappling with it. And a few years ago, DeepMind produces an AI that beats a human world champion in Go kind of as a side project. <laughs> and they never, if I remember right, they never input the rules of Go into the AI. They, they just showed the AI, the game, and the game inferred the rules. So uh, that's more complicated than that. The version of, of AlphaGo that beat Lee Sedol was actually trained on the game of Go. So it learned the rules, okay. and then it studied a lot of human games and then played itself like again and again until it right. got better and better. After they did that, after they won the, the match, they redid the game, redid the AI. They called it Alpha Zero. And Alpha Zero is what you said. They just showed it the game, and it started playing itself. So it knew the rules, but that's it. It never, it didn't learn any human strategy. It never played a human, and it plays like a freaking alien. If you know Go and you watch Alpha Go play, or Alpha Zero play Go, it does not play human, because the way humans play Go is, in a sense, stylized, because the complexity is so great that our human brains need to chunkify it in ways we can understand. Computer doesn't have to do that. So if you know Go at all, the, the Alpha Zero like makes it move here and move there and move there and move like moves all over the board. And it's like, what is it thinking? You have no idea as a human what it's thinking. It makes no sense. That that sort of nonlinearity is the pattern that I'm wondering if we're gonna see that in this tax code situation. You know, we might. And I don't know. And until we do it, and this is the thing, right? Until you do it, you don't know what to expect. You know, we think of these things like humans with human limitations, human ways of thinking. These AIs are not constrained by the things that constrain us. They have different constraints. So they're going to think differently. They're going to come up with different sorts of strategies. They'll go down paths we haven't considered. They won't go down paths we consider because they, for whatever reason, they don't process in that way. And they'll come up with novel things. I mean, it's not just the tax code. You're using the tax code very well as an example. But if you think about... It's, it's everything. All the law in the world, all the contracts in the world, anything written in so the world. So some of it's harder. So, I mean, let's sort of like back off and, and, and talk about the limitations here. You know, the reason an AI can get very good at Go is because all the rules are precisely specified and there's nothing else. There's no interpretation, right? When you think about like an AI figuring out how to curve a hockey stick, you would have to know not just the rules of the game, but the physiology of the players, the physics of the puck, how aerodynamics works, you know, all of these very human things that we just can't code into an AI system yet. Yeah. And when I think about politics, it, it's the psychology of humans. It, it's, I, think it's, I think a lot of these systems are going to be a long way off before they're hacked by, by AI. Now, the tax code or financial regulations are designed to be tractable. They're designed to be processed by computers. So there, I think it's, it's sooner. You can imagine feeding an AI like all the world's financial information like feeds from every exchange and newspapers and, and reports, and it's just told, make money. And that is an air, actual an area of research, that these sort of self-directed AI corporations. And my guess is they're going to get pretty good at it, but that's algorithmically tractable. Before an AI figures out that you, know, you should have the elevator stop at every floor on the Sabbath, that's a little far off. So I'm less worried about that kind of environment. Well, there was a recent story, you may have seen this from the Air Force, I think it was the U.S. Air Force, where they ran a simulation of 
an AI controlling a drone that was supposed to deploy missiles on some enemy target. Again, this is all in a digital simulation. And they set the thing loose and they gave it some guardrails about you know, the limitations about what it was not allowed to do. And what the drone apparently did, the Air Force is denying this, but... Yeah, I just try, I know the story and I can't tell what happened either because we heard the story, then they denied it. Yeah, but keep telling the story. So who, who knows? But, but the story is that in the simulation, the drone then turned its missiles on the human minders, the U.S. human minders, to basically blow up its own base station so that it would remove the limitations from accomplishing its mission to the nth degree. And so after it had blown up the, the friendly humans, then it went on and continued the mission. So we do worry about this. We call this value alignment in the AI space, right? What do we do if an AI is given a goal and it effectively hacks the goal, right? It achieves the goal in a way we didn't anticipate. Do you remember the computer game Breakout? Of course. So you can go online and you can see an AI learning how to play Breakout. And you can watch it. It starts out being really bad. It gets bad. It's only a few minutes long. It's worth watching. And you see the moment where the AI figures out that hack of you know, sending the ball behind the line so it, it, it kicks off a lot of bricks before it goes back. It figures that out. It's kind of neat. Yeah. Because it took humans a while to figure that out. Now, that's a benign place where the AI figured out a novel strategy of achieving its goal. We worry that an AI can figure out novel strategies that are harmful in some meta way, right? They kill the handlers. So they can achieve their goal better. Researchers are working on this. It, it, is, it is a problem. It is a worry. I think it's largely overblown. I think mostly that these AIs are controlled by humans, and I worry about the humans giving it the goal and not the AI coming up with it on its own. So. Goldman Sachs will give the AI the goal of maximal profit, and it will do all these damaging things. It won't come up with it on its own. But this is something that we are worried about and are yeah. thinking about. Okay, Bruce. So that leads us to the final question or set of questions about hope. Uh-oh, I'm ready. Now, let me just read you one sentence from near the end of the book, and you're going to tell me that's not what I meant to finish <laughs> the book with. It wasn't the last sentence, was it? No, it was not, because you, okay. you did have some hopeful things in your conclusion, but this is very near the end of the book. You write, hacking largely reinforces existing power structures, and AIs will further reinforce them unless we learn to overcome the imbalance better than we have so far. And I guess that's hopeful, but there's a that, that word unless is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Yeah, I know. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. When you, I don't know if you know, when you write a book, it's a year between the book, you finish it and publication. So you actually have a lot of time to, to think about follow-on things. And I have been spending that time thinking about the future of democracy. So that very question, you know, how do we govern these systems? How do we govern technology? How do we govern autonomy? How do we govern powerful corporations? How do we govern in a world where the things we are governing move much faster than our governance systems? So that's my unless. And you're right. It's hard. And we're, not, we're doing a terrible job right now. But it is something we need to figure out. And whether it's AI hacking or climate change or sort of any – or robotics and future of work – income inequality, all of these things are, are sort of fundamentally, the systems are running rings around the regulatory structures, and that is harming us all. So it is something I am thinking about. I mean, the book talks about ways in which to get out of that. I think they're going to be hard. You know, We right now have a lot of trouble regulating big tech, and we need to, but we have to solve it. I mean, we actually have no choice as a society. You know, we're not going to get out of this uh, century unless we can figure out how government move at the speed of corporations, how you get agile government the same way you get agile corporations, because you need some counterbalance to corporate power. Corporations are doing the role of government more and more because they're the only ones who can move that fast. I mean, Facebook is the 
de facto arbiter of free speech in this country. It decides what stays up and what goes down. It doesn't matter what the law says. So we need the opposite of that. I'm a big fan of, of government power as a counterpart to corporate power. I think uh, you know unbridled power in any dimension is is too great. So you need uh, uh, you know several different powers sort of all pushing against each other. It's the only, only way to survive. So yes, I you know I am cautiously hopeful. I don't think this will be the end of humanity and society, but I think we've got a lot of tough things to solve. I didn't make you feel better, did I? <laughs> Uh, mixed. <laughs> That's what we do around here. You know, but, but we have to tell your listeners that the book ends on hopeful notes because nobody wants to read the we're all going to die book. That's no fun. Right. And I do spend about a third of the book talking about possible solutions and ways to solve it and different paths the solution will look like. It's not even going to be one answer. It's going to be many answers. It's like any, any societal problem. It's never one thing. It's many things. I would recommend that listeners pick up a copy of A Hacker's Mind, and they can also sign up for your newsletter at schneier.com, right? That is me. So everything I write, my books, my essays, uh, I have a, a blog I've been running for, what, 20 years now. All my writings are on that schneier.com website. I'll put links to the book and schneier.com on the playlist of tonight's show. Bruce Schneier, thanks for being on Tectonic. Thanks for having me. This was fun. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 10 minutes of the show, and then the great Dave Mandel will come in to Studio A and host his excellent show. It's complicated. It's a prog rock show. You should listen to it. Hope you'll stay tuned. We just heard my interview with security technologist and author... Bruce Schneier, talking about his book, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. And I hope that you have some sense of that subtitle now, both how the powerful bend the rules and some ways that we can bend them back. That's the hopeful nature of his conclusion that he was referring to. But man, that subtitle doesn't say anything about those AIs. <laughs> that was a big headline for me. The AIs might, just might, start hacking everything beyond our control. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, thanks very much to Bruce for joining us. And uh, thanks to the listeners on the comment board at WFMU.org for putting in some interesting comments during the conversation uh, listener Wenzo and several others pointed out early in the show that that hack about the, the healthy choice puddings, the single serve pudding cups, yes, that was a major plot point of the Adam Sandler movie Punch Drunk Love. And uh, it's true. And I had forgotten that, uh, although I, I did see that movie a while back and I liked it. So if you want to see a fictionalized version of that hack, you can go uh, go watch Punch Drunk Love and, and see the hack in action as depicted by Adam Sandler. But I wanted to share one other hack story. And this is, this is one that I told Bruce um, during an interview, but I had to take it out of the edit because I didn't tell the story very well. And I've actually had some time to research the details. So now I, I have the story. So I, I want I to take a couple of minutes to tell you the hack story that, um, that I shared with Bruce, he hadn't heard it. Some of you may know this already, but this goes back to, and, it, and it's along the same lines as the healthy choice pudding cup story. So I thought it would be, it'd be fun to, to throw this in there. This goes back to 1996. There was a Super Bowl uh, commercial, you know, during the Super Bowl, major brands will plunk down a million dollars or whatever and have these highly produced TV ads uh, for whatever new launch or whatever thing they're 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 very excited about. And so, 1996, there was a commercial during the Super Bowl that um, that was by Pepsi, 
And uh, the ad had something to do with this thing called Pepsi Points, which was sort of like frequent flyer miles, except for Pepsi. And so if you buy a bunch of Pepsi products and save the labels, I guess, and, and mail them in to Pepsi, then you would get a certain number of points. Well, the, the commercial showed different things you could get with a certain number of points. There was, um, I, I forget what it was, like for 7,000 Pepsi points, you can get a leather jacket. And I'm sure it had a Pepsi logo on it. And there was other merch you could get for various thousands of, of Pepsi points. And then, because it's a Super Bowl commercial, you need to end with a big, uh, with a, a, a big twist of some sort. And so it says... For 7 million Pepsi points, you can get, and here is this, this military jet that is, that is hovering, and, and it's a Harrier. If you know anything about military jets, you know, there's, there's one main vertical takeoff and landing jet. It's the Harrier, and for, it said, for, and there it was. There was a Harrier in the commercial, and it said, for 7 million Pepsi points, Harrier jet. Uh, or, or actually it said Harrier, did it say Harrier Jet or Harriet? It said Harrier, Harrier Fighter, 7 million Pepsi points was the caption in the commercial is actually what it said. And so there was a guy out there uh, in 96 who was 21 years old. I think he was a, maybe in business school or something. And he read the fine print of the promotion because these kinds of promotions always have some sort of fine print, the terms and conditions. He read through the fine print and he discovered that it, you could, if you sent in labels for 15 pe Pepsi products, that was enough for you to gain the right to buy additional points. And I think the idea was, you know, if people are just a few points short of the leather jacket, they can send in a few bucks and then you can top it off that way. And he realized uh, this is from a, a CBS News article from a few years ago. This guy's name was Leonard. Leonard uh, noticed some fine print. In place of labels, consumers could buy Pepsi points for 10 cents each. He did the math and quickly figured out that it would take him $700,000 to buy the Pepsi points needed for the Harrier jet. Because remember, it was 7 million Pepsi points. So Leonard hit the phones and convinced five well-off investors to give him... $700,000. So he, I, I don't know who he called, but he called enough people who said, yeah, if you can score the jet, we will, we will front you, you know, a hundred thousand bucks from this guy, 200,000 from this one. So combined $700,000. So now he has the capital he needs to redeem um, enough Pepsi points to call in, in the jet. And so he contacted Pepsi and he said, he, you know, I, I have everything I need for 7 million Pepsi points. I'd like my Harrier jet now, please. <laughs> and Pepsi, rather than, I don't, of course, they're not going to give him a Harrier jet, um, but rather than making a PR, um, something amusing or fun or heartwarming out of it, they took the poor guy to court. And as CBS News reports, a court granted a summary judgment in favor of Pepsi and ruled that, quote, no objective person could reasonably have concluded that the commercial actually offered consumers a hairier jet. And CBS News continued, beyond its legal action, Pepsi updated its commercial by raising the number of points needed for the jet from 7 million to 700 million. <laughs> so don't get any ideas. No one's getting a Harrier jet unless you pay us enough for a Harrier jet. Uh, so there's your, there's your interesting story to, uh, to round out the discussion of hacks. There's always some fine print. And I guess, as Bruce said, companies are getting a little better. He has this whole section of the book on red teaming, which is when you get a, a group of um, internal resources to try to break the system. Like, how could this system be hacked, whether it's a computer system or a Pepsi points promotion? You, you red team something before you launch it. And I'm sure these companies are getting a little better at that before uh, they launch these things. Otherwise, people are going to be calling in. I'd like my Harrier jet now, please. So I, I would have ruled in favor of the guy, you know. I think it would have been really cool for Pepsi to have to buy him a Harrier. And what is he going to do with a Harrier jet anyway? 
But I guess that was that was for him to figure out. Pepsi should have given him the jet. That's just my opinion. Uh, friends, I'm out of time. Just a reminder that I want you to send me your questions for the upcoming listener questions episode. Just email them at mark at wfmu.org. And uh, I'd love to hear what's on your mind and maybe uh, take a whack at uh, answering those questions on an upcoming episode. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And our outro this evening comes from Brother Daniel Blumen, who's up at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening. Thanks, Daniel, for pointing me to El Du and Martin Kraft with a song called Computer Mädchen. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time. Oh, hi. <laughs> this program is called It's Complicated. My name's Dave. I'm the host. I'm here every Monday evening following the great Mark Hurst, whose show Tectonic airs, as I'm sure you know, between six and seven Monday evenings. Thanks for joining me. Thrilled, always thrilled to be here playing music for you. An hour of Prague and Prague adjacent music as they say, about this show. And I'm going to start off with some music from Italia. Uh, this is going to be a group called Apoteosi, early mid, early dash mid 70s group. And they did only one LP, as far as I know, a self titled record, uh, released in 1975. And this is it. And then we'll see what's next. This is the group Apotiosi.
<laughs> Greatest ending ever. I'm sure you'll agree. That was the group uh, Apotheosi from a self-titled LP released in 1975. And it was, it was, that was a track. I'm trying to remember them. stalling here while I remember the, the track title. Prima Rialta, the title of that track. And I'm now going to play something. I, I, I almost opened the show with this, but it's, it's too long. I didn't want to open the show with a 14-minute track. So we'll play this second in the show.